You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The term parental rights, to those paying attention, has recently come to mean just one thing. Not a parental right to childcare or to government support for kids in poverty or parental rights to choose a new teacher or pick a new school, no. Parental rights is now just this. In Saskatchewan, any student under 16 who wants to identify by a different name or pronoun now needs parental consent. We have the opportunity to look at a policy that is going to bring families closer together um, in this respect. The last voice you heard in that clip was Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe describing a policy that echoes a recent move made in New Brunswick. Ontario's education minister has recently made noise about a similar policy, and LGBTQ students and everybody who supports them are terrified of those policies. But when we discuss rights in Canada, well, we have a charter full of those, and freedoms, too. And it is under this basis that Saskatchewan's policy is being challenged and is currently under an injunction. Rather than waiting for a court decision, however, Premier Mo says he plans to use what those who study the charter call the nuclear option. Next week, he says, he'll invoke the notwithstanding clause and simply push the policy through. This will be a major test of what this clause means for marginalized groups here in Canada and how much our charter actually protects them. It's a complicated legal and governmental dispute, and some of the country's most vulnerable kids are stuck in the middle of it. Today, we'll explain what's about to happen, the precedent it could set, the fight that will result, and what you need to know about the nuclear option that provinces seem more and more likely to use. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Charlotte Dalwood is a freelance journalist writing in Extra Magazine who specializes in legal issues. Hey, Charlotte. Hey, glad to be here. Well, thanks uh, so much for coming on to walk us through this. It's a complicated issue, and uh, it seems to be getting a little more critical by the day here. Oh, it absolutely does. I think it's really reaching a tipping point right now. So it's it's the time to be discussing and debating uh, exactly what's going on. I mentioned in the intro, which you which you haven't heard, parental rights. Can we start maybe with the Saskatchewan government policy uh, at the center of it? If this actually is invoked, what would it actually do? The policy was announced back in August. And on paper, this Saskatchewan policy is pretty straightforward. It requires schools to obtain parental permission before allowing students under the age of 16 to use what the province calls their preferred name and pronouns. It also bans third parties like Planned Parenthood from contributing to sex education in Saskatchewan schools. Now, that's what the policy does on paper. But what does it actually do? It's forcing trans and non-binary students to out themselves to their parents. It voids any right they might have to identify how they want and express their gender how they want. Mm -hmm. And it deprives trans and non-binary students of a safe place at school to really be who they are. 
In this conversation, we're going to focus mostly on the Saskatchewan policy and the legal challenge and the notwithstanding clause because that's where, like, the big precedent is. But maybe if you could just give us a bird's eye view of of how these policies have been progressing in Canada, but also around the world. Well, what we've been seeing globally, uh, particularly in the the global West, is rising anti-trans hate. And it's been coalescing around certain language, uh, the protection of female spaces, and the protection of parental rights. These are all euphemisms for anti-trans policies. So in the case of parental rights, what we are seeing is the rise in attempts to crack down on children's freedom to be who they are under the guise of protecting their parents' rights to control what their children do. We've been seeing this in the UK, in the United States, and now we're increasingly seeing it uh, in Canada. And I think Mm -hmm. the Saskatchewan policy that we're talking about here today is just the latest expression and uh, attempt to operationalize uh, at the legislative level some of this anti-trans discourse that we've seen elsewhere. When this policy uh, was announced, what was the reaction to it? The policy has been quite divisive. So early last month, there was a large rally in front of the Saskatchewan Legislative Building against the policy. And Saskatchewan's advocate for children and youth launched a review of the policy and recommended the province withdraw the requirement that parents consent to students' use of preferred names and pronouns. That said, there has also been polling done from Angus Reid, which indicates that about half of Saskatchewan residents want schools to obtain parental consent before students are allowed to change their names and pronouns. And slightly more than a third of Saskatchewan residents want schools to notify parents but not seek their consent if students are using preferred names and pronouns. Support for the consent requirement is higher among conservative voters and quite a bit lower among liberal and NDP voters. So you can see that there is uh, quite a split along political lines in reaction to this policy. This policy is being challenged right now in court. Who's challenged it and why? So leading the charge is UR Pride Center for Sexuality and Gender Diversity. They're a nonprofit based at the University of Regina that serves the needs of 2S LGBTQ plus people throughout southern Saskatchewan. But you should know that a number of other feminist and civil liberties organizations have received what's called intervener status to assist in the cha- legal challenge of this policy. Intervener status is just a fancy legal way of saying that these organizations are going to have the ability and the right to speak before the court on the issues uh, that are under consideration at trial and to weigh in with their expert views. What's the status of the challenge right now and what is its current impact like for somebody who's in school in Saskatchewan right now uh, on a student? So let's break this challenge down a little bit so you can understand kind of where it's coming from and what it's doing. So the basic argument that's being advanced is that the Saskatchewan policy violates two rights enshrined in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So we have the rights that are in Section 7 of the Charter and the rights that are in Section 15.1 of the Charter. The Section 7 protects your right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And Section 15 ensures that every individual is equal before and under the law and receives the equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination. Hmm. So that's the argument that's being made. Now, if that argument is successful then the result will be an order from the court saying that the policy is of no force and effect. So that's the goal. It's to strike down the policy as unconstitutional. Right. So what happened last week is that uh, the 
Court of King's Bench of Saskatchewan granted an injunction against the policy for the duration of this charter challenge. So what that means in practice is that the policy can't go into effect until the court has an opportunity to weigh in on whether or not this charter challenge has any merits. Now, that case is going to be heard in November. So the injunction is going to prevent the policy from going into effect until those arguments can be made in court, which means for students in Saskatchewan schools that this policy doesn't apply yet. And now, you know, it's divisive. The arguments have been brought before the court. This is now a Charter of Rights and Freedoms issue. It seems like for something like this, that's kind of how it should proceed and the courts will decide this really important matter. What's happening instead, though? So Premier Scott Moe, uh, who's the premier of Saskatchewan, has asked the legislature to reconvene on October 10th. That's early, earlier than it was scheduled to come back together. And Mo has done this with the express intention of invoking what's called the notwithstanding clause. So what he wants to do is he wants to not just have this policy be in effect, but he wants to have his government pass legislation to make the policy law. And he wants to invoke the notwithstanding clause in order to protect the law from charter scrutiny. Give me an explainer, like I'm five, of the notwithstanding clause. What is it, very simply? How did it come to be? So the notwithstanding clause appears in Section 33 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And what it says is that an act has effect notwithstanding certain rights or protections that appear elsewhere in the charter. So it's not enough for Mo to just announce publicly that he wants to invoke the notwithstanding clause in order to shield this policy and the eventual law enacted to uh, implement it from charter scrutiny. You have to pass a law and you have to include an express provision saying that it operates notwithstanding uh, expressly named charter protections. So what protections can you override with the notwithstanding clause? Well, those would be the ones in sections 2 and sections 7 to 15 of the Constitution Act, uh, 1982, which is to say most of the civil liberties that we think of the Charter as protecting. Once you do that, once you enact the notwithstanding clause, it seems on the, on the face of it, there's very little the courts can do to actually check the legislature's use of its power. Why is it called the nuclear option? So it's called the nuclear option because it effectively allows a government, be it provincial or federal, to trample on the rights of its citizens. So it's a nuclear option because it almost voids charter rights and freedoms. How often is it used? Well, it depends on where you are in the country. So you have to understand that the notwithstanding clause is the price that Canadians paid to have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms at all. In the early uh, stages of the Charter's drafting, eight of the provinces opposed the creation of a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Why? Because having certain rights and freedoms enshrined in the Constitution limits what provinces can do. It limits the, their legislative powers. Hmm. They're subject to judicial review. So... The notwithstanding clause was added to the charter in order to appease those provinces and allow them to legislate contrary to the charter where it was necessary to do so. And that's key, where it was necessary to do so. 
The idea being that the notwithstanding clause would allow provinces to ensure their own diversity of policy uh, and legislation, particularly around issues of, of language. Now, seven of those eight provinces that opposed the charter got on board with the charter after the notwithstanding clause was added. The one holdout was Quebec. And Quebec passed protest legislation shortly after the charter came into effect, adding a blanket notwithstanding clause to all of its legislation. So every piece of legislation that would be enacted in Quebec for the first few years after the charter had the notwithstanding clause in it. Not because the legislation was necessarily contrary to the charter, but because Quebec didn't feel that the charter adequately respected Quebec's unique status within Canada. Very Quebec of them. Very Quebec of them. Now, that changed in the mid-80s when a liberal government was elected specifically on the platform to achieve a kind of constitutional rapprochement with the rest of the country, with English-speaking Canada. But Quebec has continued to be the one province that has used the notwithstanding clause more than any other. So in the past, historically, the notwithstanding clause has largely been a tool of the Quebec legislature. In general, has it typically been used in this way, where it feels like it's being used to ram through a piece of legislation that would impact a marginalized group? The notwithstanding clause uh, in the years 2018 to 2022 was used just five times two of those times in Quebec, two in Ontario, and once in Saskatchewan. What we see is that it is a sword that the legislature of a province can use to really smash people's charter rights. So in June of 2021, Ontario invoked the notwithstanding clause to protect amendments to the Election Finances Act from charter scrutiny. Mm. And those amendments limited political spending by third parties, unions, to $600,000 in the 12-month pre-election period. And this was in response to a ruling by the Ontario Superior Court of Justice that the restriction contravened the right to freedom of expression. Ontario again used the notwithstanding clause in October of last year to prevent education workers from going on strike and to impose a four-year contract on them. Right. There was massive public outcry. Education workers walked off the job anyways. There was a, a threat of a general strike, and the government repealed the legislation, including the use of the notwithstanding clause a few days after it was enacted. So what we see in those those two Ontario cases, which are 40% of how the notwithstanding clause has been used in the last five years, is really an attempt to smash people's charter, charter rights, um, in this case, particularly uh, unions. Are there any options that can fight back against the use of the notwithstanding clause, uh, be that from the affected groups in the provinces or the courts or even the federal government? Yes, there are options available to all of the groups that you've just named. An invocation of the notwithstanding clause automatically expires after five years, and it has to be re-invoked in new legislation in in order to continue in effect. Why is that? Quite simply because in Canada, we have elections at least every five years. So the idea is, that the notwithstanding clause, because it's such a blunt instrument of law, will cause public outcry when it's used. Because when the government invokes the notwithstanding clause, it's basically announcing to the world that it intends to violate people's charter rights and freedoms. 
So there's this sunset clause built into the notwithstanding clause. It's designed to allow people an opportunity to weigh in on uses of the notwithstanding clause at the ballot box. Hmm. The very first thing that people can do in response to uses of the notwithstanding clause is to vote. Now, that's easier said than done, because what we're talking about when it comes to the violation of people's charter rights and freedoms is the violation of minority rights. And minorities are, by definition, minorities. So they don't command a plurality of support in the province or in the country. So it's, it's one thing to say people can vote. It's another thing to actually see that democratic process uh, protect minority rights. Mm-hmm. But that is the very first thing people, people can do in response to notwithstanding the, the use of the notwithstanding clause. Now, what can the courts do? Well, this is a, a very interesting question because there hasn't to date really been much in the way of courts weighing in on uses of the notwithstanding clause beyond the kind of formal requirements of invoking it. Courts have not really had an opportunity to weigh in on whether or not the uses of the notwithstanding clause must be reasonable, nor have they had an opportunity to weigh in on how the use of the notwithstanding clause interacts with other charter rights. Those points are important for two reasons. First of all, the charter opens by saying that all the rights and freedoms in it, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, Mm -hmm. all the rights and freedoms in it are subject to uh, such reasonable limitations as can be justified in a free and democratic society. So the question is, does the use of the notwithstanding clause have to be justified in a manner that is consistent with the values of a free and democratic society? So that's an that's kind of an open question for the for the courts. Right. Probably it's the case that the notwithstanding clause can be used without justification. So that leads to the other question of, well, how does its use interact with other charter rights? And the big open question here uh, with regard to Saskatchewan's policy is how does Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, interact with the Equal Protection Clause in Section 28? So Section 28 is interesting because it is a second notwithstanding clause in the Charter. And it says, and here I'm quoting, notwithstanding anything in this Charter, the rights and freedoms referred to in it are guaranteed equally to male and female persons. Huh. So what that means is that you can't trample on someone's charter rights in a way that discriminates on the basis of gender. So it's not a freestanding right. It doesn't say you can never use the notwithstanding clause to override a charter right and freedom. It says that If you're going to be violating a right in the charter, you can't do it in a way that is uh, gender discriminatory. So the courts have never had the opportunity to weigh in on whether or not Section 28 is actually a limit on what we think of as the notwithstanding clause. The Saskatchewan policy gives the courts the opportunity to weigh in on the question of whether or not Saskatchewan can invoke the notwithstanding clause in order to enact a gender discriminatory policy against trans and non-binary people. So that's what the courts can do. And you also ask what the federal government can do. So there is a little-known power called the federal disallowance power, which basically allows the federal government to disallow a province from legislating on a particular issue. Now, this is an open question about whether or not this power still exists under the current constitutional framework, but... This is the double nuclear option, then, I believe we're talking about. 
Yes, it is. And so theoretically, the federal government could try to exercise this disallowance power in order to prevent Saskatchewan from legislating its anti-trans name and pronoun policy through. Now, whether or not they'll actually do that, whether there's the political appetite for it, comes back to the democracy piece, comes back to the the public outcry piece that we've been we've been touching on throughout this conversation. But there are all of these different strategies that people can pursue at the ballot box in the courts and then with the federal government to try to counter uh, Saskatchewan's planned use of the notwithstanding clause. This would be an incredibly fascinating and compelling debate if there weren't trans kids caught in the middle of it. Absolutely. It's one thing to debate these issues intellectually. It's another thing to actually think about how these debates are playing out in in homes and and in schools. And Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is that trans children who are doubly marginalized, they're trans and non-binary, so they're already marginalized on the basis of gender, and they're kids, so they're already a, a marginal age group. Mm-hmm. What we see is that they're being targeted for discriminatory government acts, I think, precisely because they are the most vulnerable people, for one, and for another, because they're the future of the trans community in Canada. And so if we can legislate trans children out of existence, it's a way of trying to legislate trans people out of existence. And that that is a, a really horrific direction for any government to be going. As people are listening to this, we are looking towards October 10th when the legislature will be recalled. And uh, presumably, unless uh, Premier Mo changes his mind, the notwithstanding clause used, what happens after that? Does that override the injunction and then another uh, challenge needs to begin? Or or give us the walkthrough of like what goes on over the next few months? So it's not clear that... The use of the notwithstanding clause, if that happens on October 10th, will prevent the courts from doing anything in November. So it's it's very possible the courts still have options with the lawsuit that's currently before them to take actions uh, in order to uphold the rights of trans and non-binary kids. Specifically, just because Premier Mo's government uses the notwithstanding clause, that doesn't mean the courts can't issue a declaration saying that what the government is doing is unconstitutional. Now, that declaration would be a moral rather than legal effect, Mm -hmm. but it's a powerful moral judgment against the government to have the court say that what they're doing is unconstitutional. As far as what I've outlined in terms of the potential legal challenges under Section 28 to Section 33, Those arguments are being made. And what I would encourage people to do, the advice I would leave people with is if you're upset about what Premier Mo's government is planning to do, is to support the organizations that are advancing those arguments for gender equality uh, in the application of charter rights. We see the intervener uh, organization LEAF, the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, building this argument. They're an organization to get behind. And of course, we've seen protests already happen publicly against this policy. I think that what we saw in in the case of Ontario uh, with its uses of the notwithstanding clause historically is that protests can really be effective in combating uses of the notwithstanding clause. Premier Mo is doing this because he thinks that public opinion is on his side. People need to show him that that is not the case. 
Charlotte, thank you so much for walking us through this. It's incredibly complicated. I understand it a lot better now. And uh, as these kind of policies continue to proliferate, um, I think all Canadians should, should know how this fight works. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Charlotte Dalwood writing in Extra. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. If you want to give us some feedback, if you have story ideas, shout outs, compliments, criticisms, whatever you like, you can email us. The address is hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. Or you can phone us. That number is 416-935-5935. I won't answer the phone. You will have to leave a voicemail. The Big Story is in every podcast player, everywhere, and on every smart speaker, everywhere. All you do is you ask it to play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Tomorrow.